You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. Tomorrow, or today rather, will be a little bit of a, a different uh, format. Um, already we've heard that the Lord is sovereign, and uh, even through the, the things that have happened in Greece, how the Lord has provided accommodation and um, got people through situations. The song that we've sung, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's all about God's sovereignty and, and Him knowing everything and getting us through. I know I have been approached by Stuart um, for some time now to take the opportunity to tell the Logos story, the Logos shipwreck. Um, it's been 28 and a half years ago, and uh, I want to thank the Lord for the opportunity to actually do this because I found myself sitting down for the first time in decades and recalling it all frame by frame and remembering some stuff that I'd forgotten. So what we, I would like to do today is to tell a story that will get God glory, that will show him to be who he is, the sovereign creator of all things. And um, just before I do that, I'd like to pray. Lord, I want to ask you this morning for all of us that you will have something in this story about yourself that will draw each one of us closer to you, that we will magnify you and see you for who you really are, and that no glory would come to an individual or an organization, but rather all of it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just to set a little bit of um, background um, before we get up to the Beagle Channel, away at the bottom of the earth, um, I joined Operation Mobilization in um, July 1986. And that doesn't seem like a long time ago to me, but to some it might seem a very long time ago. And uh, it, it was 30 years ago this month that I joined up. And at that particular time, Billy Graham was in Paris, and he was um, having a big uh, campaign there in uh, a stadium called Le Bercy. And OM was uh, given the task to blitz most of the suburbs in, in Paris, together with other organizations, just to get people the news out. So that was my first experience. Um, we were given a few francs in those days, uh, a Lada and, a, and an old Ford Taunus, a Cortina, and uh, that came off the ark. And we were sent from uh, Zaventem, or it was Leuven in Belgium, down to Paris. Um, never having driven a left-hand drive or anything like that before. So we, the money ran out. We also had a book full of boots, uh, books, rather, a book, boot full of <laughs> books. Uh, <laughs> that would have been sore. Um, so um, we had to sell those to get our food after a while. And the French weren't much into Christian books, and we were hungry. Um, <laughs> So we ended up going around the markets, finding what leftover food and stuff they had. That was my first experience of OM. Uh, for anybody wanting to go on OM, it's, it's probably five star nowadays compared to that. So anyway, um, after that campaign, I joined the Logos in Baltimore in the United States in October. And uh, originally I'd wanted to go to the Dulos because it was the, the bigger ship and it was over in Asia and the Olympics were going to be in Korea and we were going to be in Korea for the Olympics and I wanted to be there. But then they said, no, um, we need guys in the Logos. There are too many girls. Typical mission. Um, so I ended up going to the Logos, uh, which was, I'm really glad I did. Really, really glad. Because 
the benefits of that were that I stayed in, in uh, one uh, cultural region. It was Latin America, one language. There's differences in the cultures in Latin America, but only slight compared to going to Asia and changing language every week. It was a real blessing. And so uh, after 15 months of uh, sailing around South America, uh, distributing the Word of God and working in evangelism and working in the galley, uh, I'm not there, but I probably took the picture. Um, working in the galley with those guys, um, we ended up away down in the second most southerly city in the world, down there in Ushuaia. Has anybody heard of Ushuaia? Anybody been to Ushuaia? <laughs> it's a beautiful city, um, way, way almost in the bottom of the, the earth, and um, down in a region known as the Graveyard of Ships. Um, we had spent New Year's in Ushuaia, and um, we were getting ready to sail around Cape Horn. Anybody who has any uh, knowledge of sailing or the uh, world's um, shipping routes will know that that is the most dangerous passage probably in the world. There have been 800 ships lost around that Cape, and we were getting ready to go. And you can imagine on the 4th of January as we were getting ready, most of us were more nervous than normal. I looked around and I saw the deckies. They were, the deckies are the guys and the deckhands going around tying up every single thing that was loose. You know, trolleys, shelves, anything that would move was tied down. And I thought they're using a lot more rope than normal. And uh, it made me think this is going to be a very hard voyage. Um, I saw Kevin, who is from a neighboring town from me. He was out there. That image will always be in my mind. And I looked out to sea, out into the harbor. And there was a lifeboat there. And two guys were in the lifeboat. It was a covered over lifeboat. And it was snowing. Can you imagine it was snowing on the 4th of January? And I thought, that's going to be a bad night. I wouldn't like to be out in the lifeboat that night, I thought. I remember that very, very clearly. So uh, as normal, um, when we leave a port, we're usually quite tired. And everybody uh, has different ways of relaxing. Some of the Latinos. Um, Oh, that's Ushuaia, by the way. Isn't it beautiful? Probably one of the most beautiful cities in the world as well. And um, so, some people would sit up and chat and recount um, what, they, what they'd done in the port. Other people would go to bed and read a book, and that was me. Um, probably a little bit of introvertism coming out there. But um, it was about f uh, four minutes to midnight. And as I was sitting in bed, I hadn't gone to sleep yet. Um, I heard this almighty crunch. Now, I was in the cabin that was at the foremost part of the ship, just right behind what they call the collision bulkhead. It was uh, that bulkhead that uh, was reinforced in case of a collision. And um, I thought to myself, this is really, really bad. You know, when there's a crunch like that in the graveyard of ships, things start to go through your head. And uh, it was um, quite... Scary for a moment or two. But I want to just say something. I want to bring out a lesson here. Um, just prior to all this happening, the Lord began to touch people around the world um, to give them warnings, to pray. They didn't know what they were praying for specifically. Um, some people had dreams, and they dreamt it all in detail before it happened. And they were so afraid to tell anybody in case they were considered a nutcase. They didn't say anything. 
Um, there's one girl in particular, Kathy from Barbados. She had dreamt it entirely um, before it happened. If it had happened nowadays, I think I'll, what has happened in the church subsequently, it might have been uh, more normal or more acceptable to, to go and say something. But anyway, nothing was said. But what had happened was that people were stirred in their spirits to, sh to pray for the ship and to pray for the crew and to be on a kind of an alert. So that uh, engendered a lot of prayer and I believe protection for the crew. And uh, I would like to encourage each one of us here today, if, if all of a sudden someone comes to your mind, say a missionary from the church comes to your mind, don't dismiss it as a random thought. Send up a prayer for that person. Say, Lord, I don't know why I'm thinking about so-and-so right now, but will you please look after them, uh, protect them at this time, and show me how I can pray for them. Uh, it could, might not have to be a missionary. It might just be a, a family member or someone else. So uh, remember that because that was quite a striking feature of this um, shipwreck experience. And so I also got a warning. Um, just before we left, um, I had this, and it was more than a sense of fear. It was, this is going to be a different voyage. Now, I never, ever did this before. I set out on the bed eight layers of clothes. Uh, that's because it's freezing down there. The water is four degrees in the middle of summer, and there are ice blocks floating by. You know, that's the type of thing you sail by down there, a, a glacier um, like that, some huge glaciers. And um, I set them all out and went to bed. So when that crunch happened, I realized that, uh, right, get into those clothes. This is really bad. This could be the night that I die. I was only 21 years of age, and this had never happened to me before. I never had been confronted with death. Now, I, was, I felt I was alone in my cabin. I can't remember anyone else being there. And um, that thought went through my mind, but I dismissed it fairly quickly because I knew I had to get the clothes on, and I had to get up to the top to see what was going on. So I, I, I did that, and uh, all the while the alarm bell was going on the ship a constant alarm bell. But as I made my way to the, um, what we call the dining room, but it was the only room we had on the ship for conferences, for prayer meetings, for eating, for everything. We all met up there. And uh, as I made my way there, I began to perceive that um, there was a calmness on the ship. It was amazing, it was calm. The alarm had gone off and you could have heard a pin drop. It was amazing. Um, that's the Latinos uh, prior to the uh, shipwreck. They're just having a sing song. Uh, they used to sit up late, sing, eat toast. Um, so here we are, we're making our way to the dining room in our life jackets, and uh, we're seeking the Lord. One of the things that um, uh, was very, very pertinent to me was that these people, they, they're Christians. And in the hour of uh, seeming disaster, there's calm. And some of the uh, secular people writing about it later on uh, perceived that. You know, some of the uh, Navy officials that came aboard later on, they commented that um, there was a calmness on the ship, which was really wonderful. And coincided with the claims that these people made 
to know the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So I, I uh, managed to grab my camera and as many rolls of film as I could find. That was the days of film and uh, made my way up there. But I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised by the calmness that uh, invaded the ship. No panic. I mean, half the ship were girls or more. And then there were children as well. There were 139 people on board and the youngest was six weeks old. His name was Josh Dyer. And uh, then the oldest was Stan Thompson. And Stan's birthday was yesterday. He must be nearly 90 now. And uh, can you imagine the concern of fathers and mothers for their children? Um, I can't remember how many kids there were, but there could have been a dozen or more. Um, especially those fathers who had to stay on the bridge and couldn't attend to their, ch their kids. It must have been quite a test of their faith. That would have been Captain Tom Dyer and others like that. Um, one lesson was that, for me, our initial reactions to situations can tell an awful lot about us and where our faith really is. And I was really, really uh, surprised, and we were all encouraged that we saw no one freaking out in any way. So very, very shortly, what happened was that region of the world um, at that time um, was in conflict, not open conflict, but in um, a kind of a cold war. Argentina and Chile uh, were at loggerheads because General Pinochet and Margaret Thatcher were too close. And um, that annoyed the uh, Argentinians. And so there was a little bit of uh, friction there. And there were four Chilean patrol vessels right in that area when we crashed. And they were watching us going up the rocks. And uh, they heard our mayday, and they actually saw it. And very soon, they were on their way, four patrol vessels, to our rescue. And uh, they saw that we weren't going down. We were firmly up a rock, and we weren't going backwards, and we weren't going forwards. So they sent some guys on board. Um, there's the, there they are. They're preparing their tanks to go down underneath and to check to see if the hull was damaged. Now, our ship was an icebreaker, so she broke the rock initially, um, which was quite good. Um, so they tried to see what was going on. They came up after seeing that there was no damage underneath, and uh, we tried to save the vessel. And uh, the first thing that we did was we put the engines in full astern. And for those of you um, who are landlubbers, full astern means uh, reverse, <laughs> with full throttle. And um, no good, it didn't make any difference at all. So then the next thing we decided to do is we would hitch up with this old fellow here, that's the Lautaro, uh, an ex-Chilean um, tug. Um, it was a Second World War vessel, and she threw a line to us and tried to tow us off, but we weren't going anywhere. She didn't have the power to do anything. And then, thirdly, we tried to uh, change water around inside, internally, uh, fresh water, from one side to another to make us more light on one side and to allow a little bit of um, moving, movement so that we could maybe rock ourselves off, but that didn't work either. I was posted to um, man the pumps uh, along with a team of us. Um, for two hours, we stood there holding hoses while the water was transferred from one side to another. 
And it was about 2 or 2.30 in the morning that it began to get clear again. Can you imagine? It was um, midsummer, and about that time, it got, started to get clear. And that was encouraging to us, because then we could see around us and see the conditions that were prevailing. So we tried to save the ship for five hours. And then the tide began to rise, and the wind began to get up, and the ship started to go like this uh, when we were on the rock. And so it was decided that we would abandon ship. And um, if you've been to sea and you had to do drills, you will know that uh, the ship sounds, uh, Ollie, what's the abandoned ship sound? <laughs> Seven. Yeah, you got it, Ollie. Well done. Seven short and one long. And I never ever thought that I would hear the seven short and one long. Because this, after all, was God's ship, was it not? An invincible ship, therefore, and would never sink. Thankfully, our leaders didn't think like that. And they weren't allowed to because the maritime regulations had us have drills every single week. Lifeboat drills every single week. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that later on. But... Um, Yes, um, the abandoned ship signal came, and we went up to the uh, lifeboats there. I was in lifeboat number one. I was bowman, and I had to be involved in uh, winding out the davits. Now, if you go on a ship nowadays, there's no winding out of davits. You just pull a pin, and the lifeboat slips down into its position nicely. In, the, uh, in our ship, 1938 vessel, you had to wind the lifeboats out like this, and, uh, and then you had to uh, pull them in and secure them while people stepped into them. And that is a very dangerous operation. I should keep going here. That's us uh, waiting, standby in the school at the stern of the ship waiting to man the pumps. And there we are now, getting off the ship. And as you, you see that guy, I don't know if I've got a pointer, do you? Him? That's me. <laughs> and uh, I'm... Uh, trying to get life raft off. And you can see they're really heavy and it's uphill. And uh, I'd already gotten the first one off. And then to get the second one off into the water so that if a lifeboat should actually tip um, on the way down or fall off one of the, of the, of the falls, as they call them, a rather unfortunate name, um, then people could uh, possibly swim into a life raft and, and uh, escape. So we put them in first of all. And... Stan Thompson, whose birthday was yesterday, uh, just walked out through the door underneath us seconds before, no, seconds after a life raft fell from there. So Stan's celebrating his birthday now by the grace of God. Uh, he wasn't killed by that thing coming on his head. You know, one thing that happened on the ship was that um, people thought, I'm going to pack myself a case and I'm going to take it with me. But um, this is Dave Thomas. If you arrived on the deck with a case, you were promptly told to drop it at your feet and get in the boat. He, he didn't allow any luggage at all. Why was that? Well, it's because in those lifeboats, there's not much space, and a human life is more important than a suitcase. And if you're on an airplane today, and you're in, the airplane, say, um, gets into trouble, goes in the water, you have to leave everything, don't you? Not a thing can you take, not even your laptop. And that taught us about the preciousness of life. 
on a, in a situation like that, there's number one important thing is to get all life off the ship safely. And we had to leave everything behind. Now, um, as I said, every single Friday we had drills. If we were in port, it was a fire drill. So we uh, had to man the, um, the hoses and uh, get the breathing apparatus on. I think Ollie was a firefighter on the ship, weren't you? Uh, we, we did our um, fire training. I did mine in Mexico, and Andrea and, and I, we did it again in Malaysia. We had to uh, put on the breathing apparatus and go into dark buildings and all. For what? Well, on the Logos, we had three fires. I was involved in fighting three fires. Um, two on the Logos and one on the Logos Hope. Um, it was right below our cabin in the Logos. Sorry, Logos 2. Logos 2. I've been on three ships, sorry, I get confused. And they're all called Logos. So it was the middle one. And uh, because of the training that was done on the ship week after week after week, none of those things proved to be fatal uh, or terminal to the ship. But the practice for the lifeboat drills was amazing because when the real disaster came, I don't even think I thought. I don't think I used my head because everything was kind of like muscle memory. And we were able to do that really without anyone saying, do this, do that, or do the other. It was just get the boats down and away it went. And it just shows you that if we practice for um, our, our life in Christ and, and the things that will come our way, we'll be ready for it. But if we are slack in, in peacetime, slack when the waters calm, when the disaster comes, we won't be able to, we'll not be ready. We will panic. We will do the wrong thing. Because things do go wrong. And uh, what went wrong was, um, uh, just, that's just a couple of slides of people praying. There's a child, Amy um, Wells. She was only a few years old then. Uh, some people getting into lifeboat. There's our director, Graham Wells, the father of that child, getting down into the boat. And there, there's our ship lying on her side. So you see that red arrow? That is where my lifeboat got stuck. Um, so it's a, a big 37 people in the lifeboat, I think. Wait a minute. It's the wrong ship. Probably, probably about 31 in, in there. And... Um, it got stuck in there, and it wouldn't go up or down. So what now? What, what, what are we going to do now? We began to think how we're going to get off the ship. But believe it or not, three of us sat down on the white line just above the arrow, and we pushed the boat out. It weighs more than a car. We pushed it out. Where did that come from? It, up hill against gravity. I think that's one of the miracles for me of that uh, shipwreck. And I'm reminded of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That boat just went out and down, and we were able to get everybody down into the water as a result. So the boat went down uh, little by little, um, rubbing against the side, as you can imagine. So if you would go too fast, it would have the tendency to maybe tip, would catch on the side and tip everybody out. So we had to go really slowly down into the water. And all the while the boat's going, the ship's going, rocking. So bang, into the side. And people were tempted to put their hands on the side of the ship, or the side of the boat, 
that was um, one, things that, one of the things that we were told as biomen and crew of the lifeboat to make sure we don't let anybody do that. So thankfully, everybody got down into the water. Then a very dangerous phase where you have to release the lifeboat from the ship. Um, this is a very dangerous thing because if you get it wrong um, and one fall comes off and the other one doesn't, then the boat can lift up and tip everybody out. Um, it's a very, very nervous time. And I saw Captain Jonathan Stewart looking down at us as we tried to release the boat, and he was so nervous, so stressed. And I, I couldn't appreciate at the time the stress that that captain must have been under because he, he's the man where the buck stops. When it's all said and done, everybody's off, he will be standing in the court answering all the questions, perhaps threatened with jail, definitely threatened with losing his license and all that kind of thing. But praise God, um, it worked out quite well. So by that stage, um, uh, all, the, all the patrol boats were, were circling around and waiting for us. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the rescue itself, a, a lesson that um, uh, we could learn from that. If we had sat on that rock all night, and just thought to ourselves, we can get this thing off. We don't need any help. Those boats would have been circling around. They wouldn't have done anything because we hadn't sent out a little French phrase. Does anybody know what the French phrase is? It's probably known as Mayday, uh, the 1st of May or something like that, but it's actually Mayday. Mayday means help me. We had to send that out in order to be rescued. And, and, and all of us are born into this world with our boats, the boats of our lives, heading towards the rocks. And we need to be rescued. But if we sit there and don't call out for any rescue, we won't be rescued. We could sit there and say, I can rescue myself or go to an alternative way of being rescued. But if we don't call out to the Lord Jesus Christ, we won't be rescued. Perhaps you don't, uh, maybe you're not a believer here today and you're not really aware of the fact that without Christ, your life is on the rocks. Well, that is the true state. We were born into sin, each one of us. We sin because we're sinners daily and in such a state we will not be able to see the Lord we need rescuing and he's just waiting for each one of us to call out to him Lord help me Who shall, whosoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved the Bible says and we had to do that we could have said um, we don't like the Chilean Navy we'd rather have someone else I think we've been very beggars can't be choosers can they for us, they were our saviors. And for all of us, Jesus Christ is our savior. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse two says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We couldn't wait any longer. It was 5 a.m. in the morning and the ship was beginning to rock violently. We didn't know if it, sometimes we didn't know if it was gonna come back up again or if it was gonna stay on its side. So we had to get off and uh, away. 
So I was um, a member of Lifeboat One, as I said, and we were rescued by that tug that you saw earlier. I had jumped into one of the life rafts to take out all the provisions, just in case we'd need them. Um, it was probably, in hindsight, a silly thing to do, but the captain of the uh, lifeboat asked me to do it, and I got wet, a little bit wet, not completely soaked. I'm glad, and I've never been so cold in my life. And I could understand why people would die quickly of hypothermia in those waters. So when I got onto the tug, I went up to where the funnel was uh, passing up and leaned against the funnel and kept warm. <laughs> yeah, it was really, really warm. Um, so we were taken to another beautiful place. That's another shot of the ship. And you'll see a man at the top of the ladder there. That was one of our crew members, possibly Tom Dyer or Elon Alva, going back to the ship after all of us had been rescued to sit it out uh, just for salvage purposes. So as we were going away, someone snapped this picture. I don't know if you can see the rainbow there, but it's um, just coming down on the ship. And it was a real uh, sign to us that in the storm, there's hope. There's a precious uh, snap that somebody got. That's the place we were taken to. That's uh, the southerly most town in the world. That's Puerto Williams, named after an English adventurer called John Williams Wilson. And uh, it's a military base uh, of the Chilean Navy. And um, they were very, very kind to us. They took us in. Uh, they had this lovely big common room that they gave over to us. Big, huge log fire in the middle. And lots of hot chocolate and soup and rolls and things like that. That really helped us to settle down and uh, take stock of what had happened. That's us in that particular room. As you can see, it's pretty chaotic. But they got us blankets. They got us towels. Not very many. Uh, toothbrushes, not very many. Um, talk about that later. Um, but even with the good treatment of the Chilean Navy, it still, um, we still didn't need to be reminded that we'd lost everything. We'd lost our home, lost our bed, we'd lost our, all our clothes except what we're standing up in, we'd lost uh, our books. One of the things that really, really annoyed me was that I had kept meticulously every day for those 15 months. In fact, I'd been doing it before I went to the ship. So two full years of diaries with everything I'd done, all the contacts, drawings, everything lost. It so disheartened me about diary keeping that I haven't really done it since. <laughs> they ended up fish food. But um, it was a very, very real feeling of having lost everything. We felt like we'd become refugees, which is a bit, like, uh, a bit relevant because they might be coming here very soon. But to be in a foreign country, having lost your home and having nothing, felt very like being a refugee. There were six towels. You remember I said they didn't uh, give very many towels? They didn't have many towels? There were six between all the guys. So we had to work out a system. So there was a line. And everybody had to use every one of the towels. So you had to start with number one, when you're really wet, and then pass on to number two, number three, number four, number five, number six. And by the time we got to number six, it was kind of dry for everybody. 
and uh, he just kept ringing out number one. Yeah. And then the toothbrushes. There weren't enough toothbrushes, excuse me. Um, so we had to uh, share those two. So it get, gets pretty rough when you have to share a toothbrush, isn't it? And I thought of the verse, What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? We could turn that around and ask, What good is it for a man to gain Christ, yet forfeit his entire world? Wonderful. It's all good. He or she gains everything, the only thing that matters. But the other way around, we lose everything. We lose Christ and the world. So in a, in a situation like that, um, the media come. Oh, by the way, I should have... Uh, I don't know where that was coming in. Yeah. Yeah. That's coming in now. Those are the three Northern Irish guys. Um, we're not homogenous in Northern Ireland. We all look different. Um, um, the media came along and they started to ask questions. Um, the, the newspapers started to come out all over the world. It was front page headlines in many, many nations. And in, in the UK, they were not very happy because the Argentinian pilot had left our ship before he should have. So one of the newspapers had the title, RG Pilot Leaves British Ship, and things like that. So they didn't have all the information. But they did, still didn't like the Argentinians, so they gave them a hard time. But um, the news started to go out, and uh, our names were mentioned on local radio and everything else. And they all knew, in theory, that we were safe. But my mother didn't believe it until she heard me. The, uh, the ship gave us all five minutes on the phone to call home. So we all went down to the telephone post. In those days, no mobile phones. Even in the town, I don't even think there were home phones. You had to go down to the post to tell... Uh, what do you call it? The Posto Telefonico. And I uh, had to ring out from there. And we all got five minutes. And I could hear my mother's voice, the anxiety. She didn't really believe it was safe until she heard me. And even then, I'm, I was wondering if she fully believed me. Yeah. So the media was all over the whole thing. And some truth went out and some untruth went out. But then we were taking from the... Uh, by the way, that picture wasn't in Porter Williams. There's no palm trees in Porter Williams. Um, that's where Porter, Porter Williams is there. Um, can you see that white thing sticking out? That's Antarctica. So you uh, realize that we're pretty far away. That's Chile and Antarctic territory. Um, so we moved farther north up to Punta Arenas. And... Uh, the Chilean hospitality uh, was great. I wish Polo had been here this morning because he would have been all chuffed, uh, our, our local Chilean uh, member. They looked after us wonderfully well. The, ch the churches all got together. It was a wonderful occasion for uh, church unity in uh, Chile, in Punta Arenas. The Anglican, the Apostolic, um, the Assemblies of God, the Baptists, they all got together and they said, look, we'll take so many, you take so many. And uh, we were all farmed out to houses. I ended up going to stay with a, a family called the Rain family, R-A-I-N. Um, that's um, Pastor Emilio 
and his son Adam, and that's um, Mrs. Rain. Now, I just discovered Emilio died uh, three years ago, but they looked after us wonderfully well. Uh, there was a, a Denmark guy, a Danish guy called Niels Madsen. He came with me. Um, two uh, blonde Northern Europeans coming to stay in this Chilean conservative family. And Niels, Danish, he just walked through the house in his jocks <laughs> to the bathroom. And he didn't know he wasn't doing, that he was doing something strange. He was totally oblivious. And uh, I, knew, I knew better. Uh, yeah. So I think I, I gave him a little uh, counsel. Yeah. But it was wonderful. I had the wonderful joy of going back and seeing this family uh, 13 years ago and meeting up with them again. And the Lord is prospering their work. Their church was a little shack then, and now it's a huge building and doing very well. But there were lots of questions. Once we got back to Punta Arenas, that's where it really sunk into me, and I started to ask the question, the three-letter uh, word, why? Why did this happen? Why such a waste of books? My job on the ship was uh, second steward, and I was in charge of inventories of food, especially Ritter Sport chocolate, and um, all the domestic things. And just before we left Punta Arenas the first time, we took on board this container full of beautiful food all the way from Holland. And it was, the, the holes were full of everything, books and food and everything else, and it all went down into the water. And I was wondering, why in the world would this happen? These questions poured endlessly over all of our minds, and I didn't understand it at the time, but I came up with my own answer. Because when you're in a bit of a trauma, you can not be rational. So I began to think, well, I know why it happened. It's because we were out of God's will. We're all slack, lax, worldly, and the Lord just said, that's it, I'm fed up, up the rocks. And that, that's what I was thinking at the time. And I said, I'm out of here, I'm going home. I'm going to accept Samaritan's Purse. Uh, they give us the option of flying us home free. I'm going to take that, I'm going home. That's what I had decided. I want to read from Isaiah 45, verse 7. God says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And uh, I didn't appreciate that at the time. But after our time in Punta Arenas, we were flown um, up to Buenos Aires. And all the way up, first of all, we had a bus trip through the Patagonia um, over to a, a city called Rio Turbio. That's from where the uh, Argentinians launched their air attacks in the Falkland Islands. And um, all the way up there, still in my mind, I'm going home. I'm going home, up in the airplane. Ar Aerolíneas Argentinas, flying over the Patagonia still wanting to go home. But as we touched down in Buenos Aires, I can't explain it in any other way, but a very strong compulsion came over me, and it was like this, Sam, you are not going home. I never had such a strong compulsion before. Unmistakable, uh, undeniable, and I realized that God was saying I had to stay. And I didn't complain, I just felt 
I, I, with that compulsion, I had the desire to stay, whereas before I had no desire. And that's, that's, that was beautiful. So OM, realizing that we needed some um, time to debrief, um, something I had never really heard of or thought of before, they sent in um, this man, Don Hammond. He's a lovely American uh, believer uh, who's been with OM for years and years. And uh, we were taken to a Bible college in a place called Lomas de Zamora. And um, we were given spiritual input. We worshiped together. We were taught from the Word of God. We were given counsel. We prayed. And we began to heal from the whole experience. So that was Graham there. Graham is now working with my brother in the States. As he, his job in OM is to garner prayer. His whole job is intercession and raising intercession. And it began here. Graham was a, a man from the banking sector, I believe, in uh, the United Kingdom. Um, he became our director. And uh, I didn't really know him that well. I was quite, he was quite new, didn't really get to know him. But I know that he's a very different man today from the man you see standing there. But on the, fire, on the ground, you'll see a little fire. He got us all to write down the things that were troubling us. Maybe it was relationships. Maybe it was um, big questions that we had for God. Maybe it was doubts. Just things that were really burdening us. And this is the first time I'd ever seen this done before. Got them all together in a little fire and burned them. And that was a very, very healing thing that we were allowed to have. And so with the healing came recommissioning. And uh, that's us all back again. That was the same time of year, by the way. <laughs> only it was a several thousand kilometers farther north. Um, we uh, were recommissioned to go out again into mission. And some went to Canada, some went to Argentina, some to Brazil, some to Britain, some to Northern Europe, some to Asia, and some to the Dulos. And I chose to go to, back to Chile again. Um, and I have no regrets about that. That was one of the best decisions I've ever made. because. I was immersed in one country now, not just a different country every month or every two months. I was immersed in the same language. I got to travel up and down Chile twice, and I got to stay in people's homes all the time. Um, people would take us in. And just before I left Northern Ireland, someone gave me this verse from Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Wonderful verse. I tell you the truth. Jesus replied, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. What a wonderful uh, verse as I realized that was coming true in my life. In every town in Chile, I had a mom and a dad who gave me a room and they fed me and uh, let me into their lives. It was a beautiful time. Some of the happiest days of my life were spent there with a the team going up and down Chile. There were 10 of us uh, from 10 different countries. And I previously talked about Andrew Savage. He was the only other Anglo with me. And uh, we had a wonderful time together. But there's a major lesson that we learned from this, which maybe we can also apply here. For months before the shipwreck, Operation Mobilization ships were trying to make the Logos into something that it could never, ever be. 
We knew it was too small. We knew the ministry was growing. But we tried to doctor it up and make it into something that it could never be. So we made one of the holes. We made it into better cabins. Instead of having seven people in one room or ten, we were going to make cabins, and they would be double berth cabins or just four, and they'd have better bathroom facilities and stuff like that. Those cabins were just completed when the wreck happened. And uh, another idea we had but never did was to take the ship into the dry dock, cut it in half, bring down a middle section, weld it all together, and make the ship longer. Now, in case you wonder that that's silly, it's not actually, but in the case of Logos, it would have been. Because of the engineering, it just was too difficult. But you know what? God decided he had had enough of this messing around with a, an obsolete tool, and he just set it on the rock, nice and gently, far away, where no one could get it again. <laughs> and uh, that was just his gentle way of saying, out of my way, I need to get a better ship. <laughs> and you know what? Within 12 months, we had a better ship, a much better ship. There she is, the Logos II. And instead of one uh, little room that we had to eat in and preach in and teach in and pray in, the Lord gave us a ship that had two meeting rooms and a purpose-built dining room that only had to be a dining room. We didn't have to put the chairs away or clean up rapidly to let in the next conference. We could take 214 crew instead of 139 and uh, had two propellers instead of one. That makes it more maneuverable and more reliable. And that ship served the Lord for 20 years. And uh, we had some of the happiest days of our lives as a family on that ship, serving the Lord together. And that's what happened through a disaster. And I wonder, um, you know, are there situations in our life where we're trying to make things that are obsolete last and try to f fit a purpose that they never were meant to fit? We maybe just need to bite the bullet and uh, go for something that's newer and better. So in conclusion, if you were, well, just let me just show you um, a, a little bit of the difference here. That's the Logos 2. There's a little bit of a comparison. If we thought it was a big ship, just look at the one beside it. Now the one beside it would be a little bit similar to the Logos Hope, which I'll show you later. You think that ship's big? Have a look at that one. That's the Logos behind there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Logos 2. Cruise ship. Um, 300 meters long. Um, 104 or 5, I think. Something like that. That's 37 times larger than that one. It's just uh, relative. Anyway, we didn't get that one. That's what we did get ultimately. That's the Logos Hope, which we've also served on. And she's going into Cape Town there, all you South Africans. Um, beautiful gift of God. Now, if you were to go back to the Beagle Channel today, that's what you'd see. That was taken on the 10th of January of this year. She's still there, rusting away. Now she serves as a beacon to other travelers to stay away from the rocks. Logos has probably saved a lot of lives. 
um, just by being there, still bearing witness to the grace of God. Because every single one of us, 139, we got off the ship safe and sound. The only thing that happened was I got wet and one or two others got a scratch here and there. And that was all. And the, in the immediate um, aftermath, right up until now, we have been able to see that God brings good things out of disaster. And you may be facing a situation in your life today which is seemingly disastrous. And right now you cannot see one good thing in it all. That was me in the immediate aftermath of the Logos sinking. I couldn't see anything good about it and all I wanted to do was run away. Isaiah 45, 7 says, I form the light and create the darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. But there's one other thing. It's Romans 8, 28. And it says this, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. For those, uh, for love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that is a very, very true verse. I've seen it working out in our lives as individuals and also in the life of an organization and in the life of Eltham Baptist. We're here today um, because of God's goodness and we can trust him for the future. Andrea's got something to say here, a song to play. Thank you. Yeah, about a year ago, August last year, for those who are here, we had um, Breakthrough Sunday and Many of us wrote prayers, and there were prayers for things that God needed to break through, and things that we had no control over, things that needed a miracle for God to fix. And I know looking around here this morning, there's many sitting who haven't had that breakthrough yet. And you're sitting wondering, God, what are you doing? Why haven't you answered my prayer? And maybe even that little doubt has come, don't you care? Don't you have power to do that? And that's Satan trying to discourage us because God's ways are higher than our ways. They're past finding out. And the scriptures say very, very clearly, when you walk through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. We do go through hard times as Christians. And anybody who tells you that as Christians we're exempt from pain and suffering is telling you the biggest pack of lies because that's not the truth. God uses these things to grow us and mature us. God is far bigger than any of these situations and he could take them away like that if he wanted to. But he doesn't because he's more interested in growing us and showing himself in all his glory and splendor and majesty and power and authority, things that we could never see without going through these things. If life was easy, we would be lousy Christians. We wouldn't need faith. We wouldn't need strength from him for each day. But because of these hard times, God is growing us and he is making us into a mighty army who are able to do greater things because of what we go through. And I'm telling you this not because life is easy, but I'm telling you this because life is tough. And I'm sitting each day watching my daughter suffer. And I would love God to make her better. And every day I plead with him to heal her. And I plead with him for the salvation of my family. And he hasn't done it after all these years. 
But you know what? I am not going to lose faith in God's ability to do the impossible. And I know looking here, here's Karen, who we've prayed for many, many times. And I could point out lots of people that I know are going through really, really tough times. But I still know who my God is. And my God is able. My God is powerful. My God is mighty. My God is loving and he is kind and he is good. And none of these things are because of his character, but because we live in a sinful, fallen world. But God is wanting to show his glory through these things. And I heard a lovely song. I had it on my Spotify playlist. And I went to see, what's that song that's going around? And it's Trust in You by Lauren Dagley. Is that how you say it? Yes, uh, somebody pointed her out to me recently. And I thought this would be a good thing. Just We're going to play a lyrics video. So the words will go round up there. And so I'm trusting in God through the hard times. Because I know that we all need to just give these things to God again. Those of us who are sitting with those prayers unanswered, let's recommit those to God and say, okay, God, show me what you want me to see through this. Help me to have your eyes to see this situation. You know, the song says... When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. And that's, that's all we've got, our trust in the Lord and who he is, in his character and in him alone, because we can't trust in ourselves. I can't trust in Sam to fix Rachel. I can't trust in a doctor to fix Rachel. You've got your situation that you can't trust anybody else to fix, and it's going to take God to do it. So as this song plays, just take time to pray and recommit your situation to God. And if life is good for you, I rejoice with you. I'm really pleased that you're not going through tough times. And maybe you could just pray for those of us around here who you know are going through tough times. Maybe you can just take time to say, Lord, you know, I just pray for, oh, I know so-and-so, and I know so-and-so have probably got their struggles. Or if you don't know, just say, Lord, you know the ones here who need your, your strength and your grace to go through today. So as this song's playing, just Use that as a prayer to the Lord to give these things to him because he is a great God and he's the only one we can trust in. And if we didn't have him, where would we be? We'd be on that rock, that shipwrecked rock with nowhere to go. We'd just be stuck. But we're standing on a different rock. We're standing on Christ, the solid rock. And let me encourage you today that, you know, if you just need that extra prayer today, at the end of the service, just come up to the front, come to the corner of front row here, and there'll be people who'll pray with you today. And they'll keep on praying for you until you get that breakthrough. So could you play the song? Thank you. Letting go of every single dream I lay each one down at your feet Every moment of my wandering Never changes what you see I've tried to win this war, I confess My hands are weary, I need your
Father, together we just say, we're putting our trust in you afresh today for whatever it is we're facing. Lord, you're the rock on which we choose to stand. There nothing will shake us, nothing will move us. And Lord, we turn our eyes to you and look full in your wonderful face. And just remember who you are afresh today. You are able. You're able to do far above anything we could ever ask or think. You are good. And you see us and you know us just where we are today. And so, Father, where our faith is weak, would you strengthen it? Where our hands are feeble, will you hold us that bit tighter? And where we're wavering, Father, would you just carry us through until we're able to stand on our own? But thank you that you're the one who's got us. And so we know that the eternal God is our refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms holding us safe and secure. And so today we trust in you afresh, O oh God. Bless us with eyes to see you and ears to hear you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.